Once again, it's great to see everybody today, all the different faces and living rooms. We have uh, quite a few questions. We started, you may remember last week, a, a question and answer uh, time, and we got through about half of those. <clears throat> I hope that we'll get through the rest of these. There are uh, <clears throat> quite a few, and some of them aren't easy. <laughs> so it won't necessarily be a fast answer, but hopefully uh, there'll, be, there'll be some clarity on it. Uh, like, like last time, if you have a... Um, we're going to keep all these questions anonymous so that it allows you to focus on the question and the issue and not the person. And it also allows the person who asked the question not to focus on, uh, oh no, how is this coming off, as opposed to uh, just focusing on the truth and the scripture. It's possible, though, that I've misunderstood the question or that I'm not even answering at all what, what, what's asked, which happens sometimes. So if there's a, a, a clarification that needs to be done, uh, anybody can ask a clarification question. It doesn't mean that you ask the question. So if you've got a, a question that would be helpful for uh, by way of following up or clarification, just raise your blue hand and I will try to uh, call on you so that we can, we can clear it up. So let's dive right into some of these uh, great, great questions. And I'm taking these in the order that they came in, so there's no uh, particular preference or uh, priority to them. So here's the, the next one. What is the difference between the soul and the heart? I, uh, when I saw that, I started hearing that piano tune. You know that piano tune? Bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, 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 heart and soul. So we can sort of have that in the background while we're, while we're going through this uh, question. Well, if you would, turn in the Bible to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. And it's really a, a, a hard question in the sense because the Bible describes us both as physical beings and as spiritual beings. We know that there are at least those two parts of our makeup. The challenge is not that. The challenge is what is the makeup of our spiritual side? And I think that's the nature sort of of this question. What's the difference between the heart and soul? And it's a challenge on a number of fronts to try to deal with these terms because uh, the Bible not only uses different aspects or describes different aspects of our uh, immaterial you know, soul or whatever through various uh, terms, but we also have two different testaments with two different original languages. And sometimes the, we'll have one English word represented by both a Hebrew word and a Greek word, and those words may have different meanings in different contexts. So it's not an easy challenge. Uh, sometimes uh, you know, the, a Hebrew word is a different, or, or the Hebrew has a, a term that's different aspects of, uh, like soul in Hebrew is going to be different than soul in Greek, as far as the original meaning and all the nuances behind it. So it's a bit of a challenge. Um, I have a great book called Schaeffer's uh, Systematic Theology by Lewis Sperry. Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Seminary. It's like an eight-volume, huge set in which uh, Schaefer went through and looked at all the various aspects of theology. And I tell you, it is pretty exhaustive. 
And uh, I read through much of this in my seminary time, and it's also exhausting. But uh, I think that it's still in print. I think that the eight-volume set that I have, this old cloth-bound uh, eight-volume set, they have now in a four-volume set. And I'm going to share the link with you uh, here in just a little bit. But um, I would recommend that you, if you don't have a systematic theology uh, reference books, that you get them because they're very helpful with these types of questions and uh, they deal with all aspects of theology. Now, it's not really devotional reading. Uh, it's not something you're going to sit around uh, the Christmas tree and read together, but uh, it is very helpful when you've got questions that are technical and you're trying to um, you're trying to understand the big broad scope of things. Well, anyway, in his volume that deals with anthropology, so this is this is the the level of of uh, of writing that he does. But uh, l- let me just read this one paragraph uh, from his section on anthropology. He says this. I'm trying to get my quadrifocals working here. He says, when referring to the inner man, the Bible employs various terms, soul, spirit, heart, flesh, mind, and the query arises whether these are separate elements which might exist apart from each other, or whether they are functions or modes of expression of the one ego, or ego, meaning the one self. That that the latter is nearer the truth, meaning there are different functions of expressions of the one self, is generally believed, and for worthy reasons. Nevertheless, to these elements or faculties of the inner man, reference is constantly made in the Bible, and in such a manner that any one may be made to represent the whole of man's immaterial nature. Now, that's pretty heady, but what he's basically saying is uh, that when we look at these various terms in the Scriptures, it's difficult to say, well, this means this specifically, and this means this specifically, like uh, heart means this particular aspect and soul means this particular aspect, when so many of these terms are used interchangeably throughout the Scriptures. So, why not just use the same word? Well, there are nuances of, of meaning, and maybe that's what you're asking, but it's a challenge. Like, for example, uh, years ago, I did a, a pretty in-depth word study on the Hebrew word for soul, and it's the word nefesh. And I discovered that it, it, it didn't just relate to the immaterial part of us, but the Hebrew word for soul, in general, refers to all of who we are. Physical, emotional, it's like just this word that encompasses all of us. Uh, on the other hand, the Greek word for soul, suke, is very much immaterial and tends to refer to that part of, of our lives that we think that we determine as our, as our soul. Or our, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's hard to, uh, to try to pinpoint uh, a meaning outside of that. I did read some of what Schaefer said on the heart, and he basically said that it seems to represent, again, very generally, uh, the emotional aspect of our lives, but emotions in such a way that cause action. So, that's probably a, a long way around the barn to say uh, most of these terms are used sort of synonymously, sometimes with varying degrees of definition. But a great uh, Bible study for you to do, a great word study to do, would be to get a concordance 
and to go through and look at you know what the Bible every time it says soul, uh, look at it specifically in the Old Testament because it's probably using the same word. New Testament, same word, same with heart, same with mind, same with your will. I mean, all these different aspects of of our uh, of our lives. Now, I ask you to look at Luke chapter ten because Jesus quotes the Old Testament and uses some of these. And he gives a great application. Look at Luke 10, down at verse 27. This is that context where Jesus is asked, what's the greatest command? And he says, or he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So you see, even there in Jesus' answer, he's quoting from the Old Testament, but notice that we're told to love the Lord our God with these various aspects. What's the difference, as you asked, between heart and soul, between heart and mind? We aren't told, except the complex nature of of our immaterial lives only goes to show the complete depth and devotion of our love to God. All of who you are, every aspect of who you are, however you want to define it, we love the Lord our God from, uh, from that, that source. All right, let's move on to the next question here. Is there a specific oh, study, yeah, a specific study related to the creation of man and angels, or the angelic conflict between fallen and faithful angels? And then an example is given here from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. You made them a little lower than angels. And then it says, verse 8, Jesus was given a position a little lower than angels. And so the question is asked, do angels suffer death? Uh, anyway, there's, a, there's a quite a few sub-questions to this question. But just generally speaking, um, I, I thought about this in relation to when you go to a museum. H- have you ever noticed that when you go to a museum and like in the paleontology area, I noticed this like at the Perot Museum where they have all these, you know, life-size skeletons of dinosaurs. And if you go and you look at these skeletons, you can see the bones that they found and then the rest that they just kind of made up to fill out the, uh, the dinosaur. Because you can't just have, you know, a leg bone standing there. You want to have the whole thing. Well, they, they had to do some guessing. And they had to make some educated guesses to to put the whole dinosaur together when they only had the leg. That's sort of what we have with regard to angels. If we go through the the Bible, we are doing sort of an archaeological uh, uh, excavation, or or think of it with a different metaphor. If you take a yard rake and rake it across your yard, at the end of your work, you're going to have a pile of rocks and sticks, and you're going to have something collected there. That's sort of what we have to do with angels. The purpose of the Bible isn't to give us a a complete look at angels, but they're mentioned because they're part of our human experience. The Bible focuses on our relationship with God's relationship with humanity. That's the emphasis, and we've got that very deeply in the Scriptures. But angels, they really only show up in, in how the Lord uses them in connection with his relationship with us. So anyway, all of that to say, uh, we have to do our best to try to figure it out. And once again, a good systematic theology will help you. He also has a a volume on angels called Angelology. 
But I'm going to put in the uh, in the chat here a couple of links to a couple of books. And if you have access to the chat or even know what I'm talking about, then you've got uh, you've got those links there now. And if not, then maybe we can uh, maybe Dave, if you don't mind copying those links and including it in an email. I've got another link coming as well, so there'll be three total. But this is a Chafer's Systematic Theology as well as another good scholar named Wayne Grudem. He has uh, a systematic theology that's uh, a little a little bit easier to uh, to read. But anyway, they talk about angels in it. And uh, to answer this first question, as far as a specific study on angels, I, I would suggest that you look at a good systematic theology. But we can look at some of what the Bible says regarding this conflict that you, that you asked about. Okay, I just got a, a beep like somebody's trying to text me. So anyway, moving on. Um, Daniel chapter 10 is a good place to look. So let's look at Daniel chapter 10. There's not a lot in the scripture on the angelic conflict. Uh, we do know that as far as between good angels and bad angels, that it does predate the creation of mankind. Because in Genesis 3, the serpent or Satan is clearly already fallen when he tempts Eve. Uh, the book of Job tells us that the sons of God or the angels shouted for joy to see God create the world. So the angels were already around when God created humanity. And if we take Isaiah 14 and uh, Ezekiel 28 as describing the fall of Satan, there's some debate on whether it really does describe that. Uh, then we have some insight into the origin of the, the angelic fall, However, it happened, details we don't know, but we know that it did happen because the results are clearly there. Um, and, and God didn't create demons any more than God created the fallen humanity. God created holy angels, but he gave them at some point a decision, just like he gave humanity, whether they would obey and follow him and or whether they would disobey and not follow him. And at some point, evidently, that decision was sealed. Like for us, the decision is sealed at death. It's appointed man wants to die and after that to face judgment. After death, there's no more deciding. But before death, you can decide on Jesus Christ or not. Evidently, in the angelic history, there was such a line in the sand as well. But, but again, that's speculation because the Bible doesn't tell us. But as far as the conflict, look at Daniel 10, starting down at verse 10. And uh, let's look at this together. Daniel 10.10 Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he spoke this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God... Your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So we get a, a bit of insight here into the angelic conflict. First of all, we know that um, there are princes or demons 
of certain areas, geographic areas. The mentions of the king of Persia. And then Michael is also called one of the chief princes. And the implication there is uh, for Israel. And the, uh, the one speaking isn't mentioned here, but earlier in Daniel chapter 8 and 9, the, it was Gabriel who was speaking to Daniel, so possibly this is Gabriel who's speaking to Daniel again. And notice also that the angel came in response to Daniel's prayer. But Daniel didn't pray to an angel. Daniel's praying to God, and God sent the angel. Um, so one of the, I think one of the reasons that the Bible doesn't give us a lot on angels is that we are never told to engage with them intentionally. They may engage with us, but we are never told to engage with them, or to pray to them, or to talk to them. Uh, that's we, we pray to the Lord. We have one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And if Christ Jesus or the Father wants to send an angel to do something, that's the way he handles prayer. But for us, we, we call to God, and God uses the, uh, the angels. And there's a conflict. Boy, wouldn't this make a great movie to watch angelic conflict of some kind? It'd be, be uh, hard to depict it, I guess, wouldn't it? Uh, as to your other question in here, as far as angels suffering death, uh, we never see that at all, unless you want to define death as spiritual death. And if that's the case, then, then we definitely see that. The, um, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. So there is a, there is a spiritual death in the sense of separation from God that, that will occur for eternity with uh, the devil and his angels, as well as humanity, those parts, those uh, people in humanity who have not believed in Jesus. So, we don't have all the answers we'd like about angels, but um, there's still an amazing amount that we can learn. So, do, do your best to work your way through a good systematic theology like those I've recommended, and hopefully that'll give you a little bit of insight. All right, here's a, here's a question I have been praying about for the last two weeks because there's so much more than simply facts. This one is emotion and peace of mind. And here's the question. Do we know if people in heaven can see and or understand what's going on in the lives of their loved ones still on earth? And can they know if their loved ones are sorry for any wrongdoing done toward them while they were still alive? Boy, that is... Such a great question. Let's look at the first part of this first. Uh, do those in heaven see or understand what's going on in our lives? Where in the Bible would we see that answer? I don't know of any place, to be honest with you, that Scripture definitely teaches that they do see us. Uh, and, and in some sense, you could say that the other is also true, that there's nothing that really says that they don't. But there's more than implies, I think, that they don't than they do. There's a verse in Hebrews. You don't need to turn there, but I think it's like the first verse or two of Hebrews chapter 12 that says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Have you ever heard that? Some, somehow connected with people see us. But if you look at the context, right before Hebrews 12 is Hebrews 11. 
And Hebrews 11 is that great hall of faith that goes through all the people of history, of Old Testament history, who had great faith. And then it says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, what that means is not that we, there are people witnessing us, but that there have been in the Old Testament great witnesses who can testify of God, that their faith is a testimony or a witness of a life, of how life should be lived. So witness there doesn't mean that they see us. Witness means that they are like witnesses or that they are testifying uh, to God. So uh, that verse isn't, isn't relevant in, in this discussion. Okay. Oh, I see what all that is. All that noise is people trying to get in. I was trying to want, I think people, I thought people were pinging me or texting me or something, but it's just people coming in. All right. I'll, uh, I'll just ignore all the sounds. It's sort of like when you're teaching and a baby just won't stop crying. It's like you, you eventually you just got to try to tune it out, <laughs> but it's right in my ears. Um, so let's see. Well, we don't, we do know that angels uh, interact with us. Uh, we don't, we don't ever talk with uh, dead people, but uh, angels do interact with us, and they are, they are uh, like the book of Hebrews says, that we interact with angels unaware sometimes. Uh, we just don't know it. But uh, angels discuss with God what's going on here on earth. So we do know that, that angels see what's going on. Angels interact with what's going on. But as far as people, we just don't see that in the scripture, that people are uh, interacting with us. Um, yeah, boy, this is, they never gave us this in preaching class. This is amazingly distracting, <laughs> all, all the beeping and stuff that's going on in my ears. So I, I'm sorry, I'm just going to try to keep pushing through it. Let's turn it off. Thank you. All right. So, um, so people we don't we don't see in the scripture that people can. Uh, uh, let's try to get my head back in the game here. W right. A angels see what's going on. Angels see what's going on. We don't see that people see what's going on. Um, Luke chapter 16 is one example where Jesus tells a parable. You remember that of the rich man and Lazarus. But uh, and the, the rich man asks Father Abraham in the parable to send someone because he's concerned about his brothers. Uh, but again, that, that doesn't imply that he sees his brothers. It just implies that he's concerned. So, honestly, it's sort of pretty tempting to fill in the holes of what we don't know, like trying to build a dinosaur with a leg bone. Um, so we have to be very careful about doing that. And uh, the Bible never gives us uh, that permission to do so. But let's look at the second part of the question. And that's really, the uh, I think, the reason that uh, the question is asked. Do they know that we're sorry for what we've done? Uh, let's look together at two, two passages, uh, Revelation chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Revel Revelation 12 
and 1 Corinthians 13. And as you're turning there, I want to share just a quick personal story. I had a close relative die a few years ago. And in the final years of his life, I worked really hard to have a good relationship with him. It was a challenge. It was a challenge all my life to have a good relationship with him. And I thought, I really thought we had a good relationship. And it wasn't until a few days after he died that I found out that um, he held something against me. And the specific thing that he held against me uh, was wrong, but now that he's gone, there's not an opportunity for me to make it right or to clarify it. And it really, really hurt me because it, I knew it was something that he thought about me or believed for years uh, once I found out what it was and I traced it back to where, where it began and everything. And I just thought, oh, just such a shame that we couldn't have talked about it because we could have talked about it. And in about a five-minute conversation, we could have cleared it up, but we never did. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know about it until after he was after he had already died. And um, I guess the thing that really hurt me is the sense that now we'll never be able to work it out. The sense of permanence that that really hurt. And then I began to filter my emotions through theology, and it really helped me because there were two truths that I was able to filter this through. And the first is simply that, that God knows the truth. God knows the truth. God knows my heart. God knows that what he believed about me was not true. And, and that really helped knowing that the Lord knew the truth. And the second is, is that my relative is now in heaven and now he is released from the fallen nature that, uh, that kept him believing a lie. He is released from that fallen nature. So in the same way, I know it's not exactly the same scenario that you're asking, because in this case, it sounds like you really did do something that hurt this person. But in the same way, your loved one in glory is released from, from the fallen nature, from their flesh, that made your sin against them a burden to them. That's gone. The burden that they felt uh, because of the wrongdoing that you did is, is gone. It's not a concern to them anymore. Now, Revelation 12 is what you're looking at. Let's read Revelation 12. Look, look down at verse 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ, of his Christ, have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love even uh, their life even when faced with death. I wanted us to look at this scripture because this shows us, reminds us, that the accusations that we hear in our head are from Satan. 
Satan is the accuser, not the Spirit of God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sins, past, present, future, all of your sins, were placed on the cross. Satan accused Job, and Job was innocent. Uh, Satan accused the priest Joshua in the book of Zechariah. This is an incident that we don't hardly ever talk about. But if you read Zechariah, I think it's like chapter 3, I believe. It's a vision where Zechariah, in the book of Zechariah, the priest Joshua is standing there soiled, and Satan is standing there accusing him. And the angel of the Lord basically rebukes Satan and gives uh, Joshua a white robe to wear. So Satan's, Satan's passion is to accuse us before the throne. And we're told here in Revelation 12 that he accuses them, he accuses us before our God day and night. We see this in Job, uh, and we see this, uh, like I mentioned, in the book of Zechariah. The peace that we have uh, with God is based on the blood of Christ. In fact, this verse says that they overcame him, they overcame Satan, because of the blood of the Lamb and their, the word of their testimony and their, and their willingness to, to, to die for Christ. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but you're probably familiar with what David said in Psalm 51. He said in Psalm 51, Against you and you only have I sinned, as he prays to God. The uh, context of Psalm 51 is that David had murdered Uriah and had taken his wife Bathsheba to be his wife. And, of course, uh, David's uh, uh, illicit affair with Bathsheba as well. So David had not just sinned against God. He sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and, uh, and, and others in, in the sense of abusing his leadership. And yet, in Psalm 51, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned. And that is so helpful, because we need to take that same mindset. That doesn't mean that we never need to confess our sins to one another. But here's the thing. If it is impossible for you to reconcile with someone who is gone, a couple of things we need to remember is that, first of all, ultimately, any sin that we commit is against God. And so if we can make sure that that is right, everything else falls into place. If you are right with God, then you are right. And the the relative that you're concerned about, um, they are not burdened by this anymore. Think about this question. Do we have peace with God because we're sorry for our sins? No. That may be where it begins. That kind of sorrow and regret may lead us to the solution. But the solution is the cross. The solution to our sins is the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ. The basis of our peace with God is the cross. And so if we are reconciled with, to God, then we are reconciled against all of our sins. Romans tells us there is now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're also open to 1 Corinthians 13. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 down at verse 11. It says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. 
When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. In other words, Paul is saying God knows us fully right now. We don't know God fully right now. We see in a mirror dimly. But when we're in glory, face to face, we will know God just as we are fully known by God right now, which is amazing. Um, And that's true of your loved one who's in glory. They are now face to face, and they have an understanding that is broader than the understanding that they were limited with when they were on earth. And they understand that the reason that their sins are forgiven, the reason that they're in heaven, is because of the grace of God. And they also understand that's true of anybody else who has placed their faith in Christ, including you. Nobody is concerned about your past sins except Satan. And he continually, night and day, brings those before the Father. But we also have our Lord Jesus, who intercedes for us constantly, and uh, who, who reminds uh, the Father in, in that sense that our sins are forgiven. Now, whether or not your loved one specifically knows that you're sorry, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us that, obviously, which is probably why you're asking. But good theology tells us God knows, and God fully knows. And what you're asking about relates to how you are feeling about the past, how you are feeling about the past, not how they are feeling about the past. Um, They're not worried about the past right now. They are in complete peace and paradise. So, all of that to say, my friend, God's Word gives you the permission to be at peace with this. Put a stake in the ground. May 31st, 2020. This, this is a non-issue in heaven. This can be a non-issue in your heart as well. Let's look at this uh, next question. Do we know if the deceased are given temporary bodies in heaven, or are they only spiritual beings for now? When will they receive permanent bodies? Thank you for an easy question. Finally. Uh, it's a great question, though. Uh, we won't turn there, but let me give you just a few passages if you'd like. Uh, Luke 16 and Revelation 6. We've already talked about Luke 16, but that's the rich man and Lazarus. And in the context of that parable, Jesus always tells parables in a context of truth to to teach uh, an abstract reality. And uh, Luke 16 is people having conversations after death. And it's a context where there are bodies. So there is some sort of temporary body. Luke 16, Revelation 6 also says it where the martyred saints come to the Lord and say, uh, when will we have justice? And God gives them robes to wear. So uh, there is some sort of temporary body, but we just aren't told much more than that. Now, when do we get our final uh, resurrected bodies? These bodies, the actual bodies that you're sitting there with right now, are going to be resurrected, uh, glorified, thankfully. And this occurs for different people at different times. Uh, For Christians, we know that this occurs at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. For Old Testament believers, this resurrection will probably occur right before the kingdom of God, at least by then. Uh, We know, for example, in the final verse of the book of Daniel, 
the very last verse of the book of Daniel, whatever that verse is, I, I don't remember if it's 13 or 18, but uh, Daniel is told, Daniel, you will rest, go to your rest, and you will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So, at least before the kingdom, because the kingdom's what they've, what all of Israel has been banking on for a long, long time. And finally, for unbelievers, they will be resurrected at a different time. Now, the book of Revelation chapter 20 says that they will be resurrected before the great white throne of God, uh, basically just long enough to be cast into the lake of fire. So, three different people, three different times, Christians at the rapture, Old Testament saints right before the kingdom, and then uh, for unbelievers right before the uh, eternal state as they stand before the great white throne. Okay, next question. Um, this one's about prayer, and it basically, it's a long question, but it's basically saying how come uh, we, when we pray, uh, some answers, some prayers get answered, some don't. How is there any comfort to the person who doesn't get an answer when the person sitting next to him did get an answer? Um, it is a bit of a confusing existence, uh, prayer, to a God that doesn't seem to answer. But mostly, I think it's because uh, we, we try to fathom the unfathomable mind of God. God's Word clearly teaches us a couple of things about prayer. First of all, God wants us to pray. Uh, it's commanded to pray. We can see that all throughout the Scripture. Also, prayer doesn't change God, but it does, God does sovereignly choose to work through prayer and to work His will through prayer. That may be the, the part that's the, the aha moment. It's, why did God answer this person's prayer but is not answering my prayer? It's the will of God that we're asking and ultimately seeking. you got so many biblical examples of this. Uh, Genesis 18, where Abraham is praying for Sodom. Remember that? Well, if there's 50 righteous people, well, how about there's only 10? Well, how about only, you know, just a few? Um, it's almost like haggling God. And each time God says yes, God says yes. But God is sovereignly involved in that. God brought it up to Abraham to get Abraham to pray about it which is just amazing. Um, so why does God answer some prayers and not other prayers? Dave, if you'll turn the chat back on, I've got one more link to drop in here. And it looks like I can. Yeah, it looks like I can. So, all right. So I dropped it in there. This is a, a post that I wrote that basically gives the five reasons or at least five reasons that God doesn't answer prayer or as we understand, an unanswered prayer. And I won't go through all those reasons now because it would take quite a while. But ultimately, it boils down to uh, Jesus' example in Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus, the perfect person, gives the perfect prayer, and so it's not that he wasn't praying the right thing, but he gives the perfect prayer, and he, but he qualifies it saying, not my will, but yours be done. So it's not wrong to pray, but we have to always hold our prayers with an open hand, realizing that our sovereign God works through prayer. He's commanded us to pray, but He may take our prayers in any direction according to His will. And just like Christ, we, uh, we need to be okay with that. All right, next question. We're getting toward the end here. 
Uh, I've often heard others say you can't claim all of God's promises. Some are just for Israel. If God is satisfied with Jesus' redeeming sacrifice on the cross, and we've been grafted into to become his adopted child, why can't we claim all of God's promises? And then a couple of examples, Jeremiah 29, 11, or Joel 2, about restoring the years the locusts have eaten. So basically, the bottom line, as believers in Christ, can we claim all of God's promises personally? Wow. Let's look at this in Jeremiah 29, 11. That's a great example of, uh, of this question. Jeremiah 29, 11. I love the question because it basically asks us, how do we apply all of the Word of God? If, it, if it's applicable, how do we apply it? And the Bible tells us that it's applicable. Like in uh, 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, he said the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the short answer is, well, how do we do that? How do we use it lawfully? And the short answer is, we need to look for principles, not just promises. So let's look at this in Jeremiah 29 11. It's a great, uh, great example. Let's start actually with verse 10. Let's get the context. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring, bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. The challenge of just grabbing verse 11 out of that context is, is really hard because this is clearly a passage that has a historical context to Israel related to the exile. Uh, and not only that, it's not all of Israel at all time, but Israel in Jeremiah's day. So, how do we apply it? Principles. Principles are the key to biblical application. So, you always want to ask, what is the timeless principle that this passage teaches that is also supported elsewhere in Scripture, and ideally for us as New Testament Christians? Now, this promise in Jeremiah 29 clearly has a context, not to America, not to the church, but to Israel. But there are principles that are true here that are true of America and the church and your life. For the church, for example, all we've got to do is go to Romans 8.28. You think about that Romans 8.28 where it says that, uh, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and called according to His purpose. That's Jeremiah 29.11. It's the same idea. But you have a principle that God sovereignly works His will in our lives for our ultimate good. And that principle is timeless. But you take that principle and you drop it down in the context of Jeremiah, boom, Jeremiah 29 is how, is it, how it's applied. You take that principle and you drop it down in our lives, boom, Romans 8.28 is how it's applied. So the principle is timeless. But you just you want to be careful about saying Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is a promise for me. What might be more accurate to say is that it teaches a principle that is timeless. But make sure that you can support that by pointing to other verses 
Otherwise, uh, you can start making timeless principles out of uh, you know the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, and you, you can start a great cult that way. But just make sure that the principles are backed up in the rest of the Scripture as timeless and not just focusing on a specific historical context. Uh, if you want to know God's vision of uh, dealing with nations, we won't turn there, but just jot jot down a couple of chapters back, Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. And you could write the United States of America in the margin there, because that is typically, generally, how God deals with nations. Here's another example, though, with regard to this excellent question. Are all the promises of God something that, uh, as far as us being grafted in and all that, we might experience the benefits of someone else's promise, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're ours. For example, if you invite Kathy and me over to your house for a meal, uh, you're not giving me your house. You may let me sit in your chair or use your bathroom, but you're not giving me those things. You are giving me the benefit of those things just as they are your benefit, but they're not mine. I think that sometimes we can confuse the, the promises and privileges. The promises, by and large, are to Israel, but we get to enjoy just as much uh, of the, the fulfillment of those, even though they aren't ours. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. We've got a few more minutes here. Um, here's a quick one concerning the 12 tribes of Israel, doing some cross-references and noticing that the tribe of Dan is not listed in the book of Revelation. Well, Revelation 7, if you were to turn there, you would notice a list of all the tribes, the 144,000 that are going to be sealed, and Dan isn't mentioned. Why isn't Dan mentioned? Well, if you look throughout the scriptures, you'll see, I think it's like 29 times that all the tribes are listed, and every time it's 12 tribes. The challenge, though, is that there are actually 13 tribes. Levi is usually not mentioned because the priestly tribe is um, uh, you know usually not related to the land because the Levites didn't get any section of land. So when you think about a tribe in the sense of its tribal allotment, that's that can be different than the tribes themselves. Remember, Joseph got two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and so there's really 13 tribes. So one of the tribes has always got to be left out in the sense of it being numbered because there are going to be 12 tribes. Every time the tribes are mentioned, there are 12. Why did the Lord do that? I don't know, but there are actually 13 tribes. But there are 12 that are always mentioned. Why is Dan left out in Revelation 12? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why. We can only sort of guess that it's because uh, Dan was the first tribe to go into apostasy. But again, that's speculation. The good news is, Ezekiel tells us that Dan is represented in the Millennial Kingdom. So Dan's not left out, uh, but for some reason they are not mentioned here as being sealed during the Tribulation period. Why? Uh, we don't know. All right, one more question, and this will be a quick one. And I know, Dave, you wanted me to stop at 1025, but that may not happen. So I'll, I'll make it fast. Um, this question says, a few weeks ago, you taught on Matthias and how he was chosen to replace Judas by lots over Barsabbas. Can you speculate as to how also Barsabbas should react to being re relegated to second place? Barsabbas was qualified for consideration, but he wasn't chosen. What do you say about the, the qualified but unchosen? 
it seems there are many more unchosen than those who are chosen. Such a practical question, isn't it? Um, well, first of all, we, we should all be qualified. All of the qualifications for uh, a top-notch you know, Christian should be what we all strive for. So there's no, uh, there's no varsity and junior varsity as far as, our, uh, uh, as far as our walks with God. But there are different roles, and there are different aspects and different gifts from the body of Christ. And the eye cannot say you know, to the hand, I don't need you, you know that passage. So just because there are different roles doesn't mean that there are different levels of like varsity and junior varsity. And as far as just how do we deal with being second in the sense of it, first of all, redefine it and understand that nobody's second. If God's plan and God is chosen, we're just different. Nobody's first, nobody's second. Uh, the pastor is not two steps ahead uh, because he's the pastor, and uh, the janitor or whoever is not uh, you know, the end of the line. We're all, all servants of God. In fact, Jesus even said, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. God does not rate us on the sense of our position. Position doesn't matter. It's character, and it's the heart that matters. You know that scene in John 21 where Peter and John are walking along the beach with Jesus, or actually Peter and Jesus are walking and John is following. And um, Peter learns how he's going to die. And then Peter says, well, what about John? Lord, how's he going to die? And Jesus' answer is, you don't worry about that. You follow me. That's such a helpful response. So when we're looking at somebody else that we think they've got a better position or whatever, Christ, Christ's response to us is, you don't worry about that. You follow me. All right, well, that's all the questions. So let me give a quick prayer, and then I'll give it back to you, Dave. Lord, we're grateful to you that your word gives us insight into things that often cause us to scratch our heads. It doesn't give us all the answers we want, because certainly um, your word is so much deeper and broader but uh, there is an element of faith that's required in our lives. Thank you that you've given us enough to give us a solid faith, but yet you've not given us enough that allows us to trust you with those unknowns. Lord, we pray for the scripture that we've seen today and the truth that we've talked through and just ask, especially when it relates to uh, issues that cause us heartache, that your spirit would come in and would provide healing and soothing uh, comfort through truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.